Hello there. Welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Well, have you recovered from last week's shenanigans in Canberra? And do you think the press has been too soft on Malcolm Turnbull? After all, he was unpopular over a long period of time. And let's not forget, he came to power as he left it. A brutal knife fight. We'll have two views on Malcolm Turnbull and the media. Later on, we'll address 100 days of Dr Mahatia. To what extent has Malaysia changed? Stay with us for that. But first, to federal politics. To borrow from Oscar Wilde, one must have a heart of stone to watch Malcolm Turnbull's political death without laughing. In 2015, he toppled Tony Abbott in a premeditated and ruthless coup. Yet last week, the assassin himself was fatally knifed. Turnbull, as the saying goes, lived by the sword and died by the sword. Mind you, to say the knives came out for him last week, that'd be wrong. Some never put them away in the first place. So how will history judge the outgoing federal member for Wentworth? The former Environment Minister, Communications Minister, and of course, our 29th Prime Minister. Janet Albrickson is a columnist with the Australian newspaper, and Catherine Murphy is a political editor for The Guardian. You may recall Catherine was on the program a month ago to talk about her new book called On Disruption. Ladies, welcome to Between the Lines. Hi, Tom. Janet, why did Turnbull attract the ire of so many conservatives in and outside the party room? Tom, I think there were three core reasons uh, for Malcolm Turnbull's uh, removal last week. One was on policy, obviously, and again, it was on climate change uh, versus energy. Um, It's rather ironic that that would happen again, but it did. And then there was, I I think, a lot of disappointment over Malcolm Turnbull's political tenure. Um, His political skills were woeful, I think. Uh, You know, from the moment he came in, he was bouncing all over the place. There was no real understanding, I think, for voters or anyone within the party as to where the Turnbull government was going. It was a bit like ping pong watching those early days. Lots of thought bubbles. Uh, To see his political skills during the 2016 election, again, was incredibly disappointing for those of us who thought that he would be better as Prime Minister than Tony Abbott. And then, of course, there are fundamental differences over philosophy that I think have attracted the ire of so many people within and without the party. And that is that I don't think that Malcolm Turnbull truly respected the Liberal Party as a proud tradition of bringing those two strands together, the small L Liberals and the Conservatives. It really was the Turnbull Party. Okay, now given all of that, Catherine, why do Conservatives put up with Turnbull for as long as they did? Well, I think it's it's a bit more complex than the picture that Janet describes, although I'd have a, a degree of overlap in some of her analytical points. I think with Turnbull, it was a bit like the generals always fighting the last war. Uh, he learned in 2009, uh, by, through better, bitter experience, that he was leading a political movement, not a one-man band, and I think he projected that into his prime ministership, but probably too much for his own good. Now, when the government emerged with a one-seat majority after the last election. Uh, He didn't have a lot of room to move. He made a lot of compromises uh, that really cost him, I think, in the eyes of voters. Let's move this out of the prism of a Liberal Party civil war and and pay the voters some respect and look at it from their perspective. Um, He made a lot of 
compromises uh, and unfortunately for him, uh, in the end, his internal enemies weren't placated. Uh, and I think that's the dynamic of the prime ministership. In terms of Janet's point about him having a political tinea, I totally agree that he's an, a highly unusual political character. He's an individual in a herd enterprise. He didn't exhibit great in instincts for politics. I think he always assumed that reason was the default when politics brims with animal spirits. Uh, he looked a bit displaced in that environment mm. because he would he would go to the reason default. Uh, that left him looking out on the hustings like he couldn't read a room. It left him seeking compromise endlessly with colleagues that in the end they didn't really want to make. Uh, in a way, uh, notwithstanding the the right, you know, sort of progressive dynamic within the Liberal Party, I think I'll have this enduring image of Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister as the reasonable man in a sea of unreason. You know, right mm. till the end, he was pursuing his technocratic responses to complex uh, problems in an age where populism's on the rise. There's sort of a few things out of joint there, as well as the underlying dynamic that the right of the Liberal Party never thought he was one of them, never accepted mm. him and wouldn't rest until he was out. Well, when he became the leader of the Liberal Party three years ago, uh, the overwhelming media and political consensus that was that he was you know, the new Whitlam, I think Mark Kenny from the Herald made that point. There was a real sense of excitement. Uh, Elizabeth Farrelly in the Sydney Morning Herald, she even said that air itself has a new edge. <laughs> and she made a prediction that Malcolm, who like Beyonce is known universally by his first name, quote, will be the longest serving Prime Minister since Menzies. Were these expectations ridiculous in hindsight, Janet? They, they were completely ridiculous. And I think <laughs> there's a lot of it that that still goes on. And you know, I seem to sense there's a lot of sort of quiet grieving in sections of the media over Malcolm Turnbull's demise. And I guess I, I disagree with you um, on the sort of the sense that he's a reasonable man in a sea of unreasonableness, Catherine, because there were so many episodes that to me spoke to a man uh, who didn't understand, uh, you know, what it is to be a politician. So if I could go through some of those just to challenge that view, and that is, you know, on that night of the 2016 election, Malcolm Turnbull didn't acknowledge that many of his MPs had lost their job. He was really just, it was just a spray of anger, um, when the same-sex marriage vote came down, he was gloating about the result and he was entitled to be happy with that result. But as Prime Minister, you would also acknowledge that millions of Australians had voted differently and we're a democracy and we respect that. Just acknowledge that. I think Malcolm just ran a one-man show. I don't think it was run by reason. I think it was actually fuelled more by ego, Catherine and... Um, you know, when he started, he started losing credibility because he just kept trading convictions because he wanted to extend his shelf life. Yeah, but Janet, many people would say that Turnbull was a prisoner of his party and a more progressive Turnbull would have bled um, uh, maybe some votes on the right, but he would have won a lot more votes in the middle. Catherine? Well, yes, I think getting back to the expectations point uh, that you were making, Tom, there, there were ridiculously unreasonable expectations about what Malcolm could do or was capable of doing at the beginning. I think there was this kind of nas national catharsis at the end of the Abbott period, and I don't say that lightly. I think uh, there was this sense of, well, there, there, that, that was all a bit strange and thank God it's over and this guy's showed up. Like, again, from the point of view of voters, I'm not talking about the internals of a political movement, I'm talking about perceptions from voters. And in terms of this dynamic 
uh, about you know the who who Turnbull was. Was he more progressive than than colleagues allowed him to be? All of that sort of stuff. I think that caused him real problems in his prime ministership. Now I don't know. I think uh, Michelle Grattan uh, sort of um, expresses a sort of essential character of or quality of Malcolm Turnbull's very well when she sort of describes him as the venture capital politician. Uh, he's he's sort of relentlessly curious, moves from one thing to the next, uh, is sort of needing that stimulation when I think because of 2009 a lot of voters would have uh, sort of had him pegged as a conviction politician and very fixed in these progressive views. He proved a more protean character in office. But again, one of the fascinating things that historians will pick apart, you know, as we write this story for real as opposed to sitting around in well-meaning discussions like this, once we start to sift and look and look at what decisions were made when and and for what reasons, then we'll get a more a clearer sense, I suppose, of whether this guy was really constrained in the office by the dynamics or the internal dynamics of the party, or whether he wasn't, whether his convictions weren't in fact as fixed as some uh, middle of the road voters assumed they were. Janet Albrechtson, fair point. Um, some of that is fair, Catherine. I, I think when we talk about you know Malcolm Turnbull being bound for greatness, one of the problems with a lot of his. Um, his fans and supporters in the media was that they never really grasped the nature of Malcolm Turnbull's popularity. And I, I, I say that listening to an interview this week on ABC Radio where Emma Alberici was interviewing Susan Lee on Monday. And she said, well, why didn't you vote for the most popular person, Julie Bishop? Uh, Emma said, even Greens voters signal that they favour Julie Bishop. Well, you know, the left and, 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 and sort of progressives might favour Malcolm Turnbull over Tony Abbott in the same way, but it doesn't mean they were ever, ever going to vote for Malcolm Turnbull. That's how shallow uh, the popularity was. My guests are Janet Albrechtson from The Australian Newspaper and Catherine Murphy from The Guardian Australia. Now, Chris Yulman, formerly of the ABC, now with The Nine Network, uh, he said that Turnbull was more or less the victim of the News Corps campaign. Catherine, was that a fair point? I think Chris made some substantially fair points. I think, though, we need to separate out the practice of journalism, journalists working very hard in order to stay ahead of an emerging leadership crisis, which is, of course, what happened. You know, hard work by journalists trying to stay ahead of the story and and um, point point the the narrative of the story in the right direction versus commentary, very acidic. Uh, commentary that uh, occurred in parts of the news stable, uh, particularly as this internal crisis within the Liberal Party intensified. And the problem with some of that commentary on Sky News, on 2GB, in, in, uh, in news, was that it created a feedback loop back into Liberal Party branches. A lot of these programs, not all of them, some of them have substantial audiences, but not all of them have substantial audiences. They have quite small audiences. And the, the disconcerting dynamic to witness as a as a journalist, obviously uh, trying to follow a, a big news story, was that this sense of disproportionate influence. Because, you know, when Peter Credlin was editorialising every night strenuously against the Prime Minister, when Andrew Bolt was, when the, uh, Alan Jones was, what that would do was animate people in Liberal Party branches and they would write to their... MPs and on the National Energy Guarantee and say this is a, an act of latent communism, how, how dare you not stand up for the national interest, you've got to get rid of that Turnbull. And that created pressure 
on sitting MPs, and I think that fueled some of the dynamic that we saw over the fortnight, which escalated towards uh, the end that we all saw. And uh, again, look, commentaries, it's all like I love living in a robust democracy where not everybody agrees with everybody else. I really don't require people to agree with me, but I was very concerned to watch that because it's sort of it typifies this narrow casting dynamic that I'm very concerned about yes. in this period of media and, disruption, and which view you is, and I have spoken about. Catherine's, Tom. That's right. And Catherine's view is not a minority view, um, Janet. Um, you'll often hear the argument, and Catherine's not necessarily saying this, but there will be the argument that conservative opinion, you know, your Alan Joneses, your Ray Hadleys, your Andrew Bolts, sky after dark. How often <laughs> did we hear that in the last week? God, it it's sounds in, scary. It's intoxicating the public debate and undermining democracy. How would you respond to that argument? <laughs> Look, I think it's nonsense. I've been around long enough to see this emerge, gosh, during the, the, the Howard era. And I think we need to recognise what's happening. And it's something more important than the demise of Malcolm Turnbull. There is a fundamental dispute between uh, left and right about the meaning of democracy. And it's one thing to point out that Turnbull attracted the ire of some in the media on Sky or 2GB or News Corp newspapers. But it's quite another thing to paint it as a dark and sinister development that thre- threatens the fabric of our democracy, as Yulman did. Um, you know, like when Tony Abbott, when the left-wing media went after Tony Abbott, that was freedom of the press and a robust democracy. And when sections of the centre-right media critique Turnbull, it's a toxic erosion of democracy. This is sort of the default setting. During the Howard era, we had books literally written. Uh, one was called The War on Democracy, Conservative Opinion in the Australian Press. I was one of those <laughs> army of, you know, insurgents that was... was Flamethrower, Janice. You know, and this imagery of war, it's nothing new. It's just an attempt to legit- yeah. delegitimise viewpoints. Um, is, there, is, there a do- is there a double standard here, Catherine? No, well, uh, just on that nothing new point. I agree with Janet. I don't think uh, sort of uh, dipping people in a hydrochloric acid bath by way of commentary <laughs> is is a new thing. Obviously, that has existed uh, since the since the beginning of journalism. And it happens in Britain and America and other of robust course, democracies. Of course. To, to say that this is a function of, of here and now and a new mm. thing is obviously false. The, the dynamic, though, that makes it dangerous or makes, makes, the, or, or, or makes us need, I think, as a society to be highly attentive to it is the what the what uh, i suppose the the effects of the disrupted media environment and how that amplifies some of this commentary and also makes it very very narrow cast it speaks to a certain group in the community now just because a bunch of people watching Peter Credlin line up MPs, as she did in the week uh, sort of before the leadership spill and the week of the spill, in essence grilling them uh, on her program about why they were supporting the National Energy Guarantee, brackets a policy supported by the business community to a person, right, uh, mm. Uh, that that created this dynamic of feeding back into their branches. It animated a small group of people and then a small group of... It's, it's like the tail wags the dog, right? Mm. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned about having people having free and robust and scarifying opinions, if that's what, you know, kind of rocks your world, if that's the way you want to style your commentary, go for it. I mean, you know, I don't have any okay. issue with it. Janet Albrickson. 
I think there is uh, the problem with all of this focus on the media being a threat to democracy or certain parts of the media is that the very people who are making those kinds of ridiculous claims um, are doing so rather than offering up serious analysis of what actually happened. You know, the, the, the point that Tom made, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Where is the where is the analysis come from those uh, critics of the staggering hypocrisy of Malcolm Turnbull talking about malevolent, pointless, you know, disloyalty and deliberate insurgency? Let's have some proper analysis of that rather than these silly claims that emerge every time the left is on, on the losing side. They just behave like a bunch of sooks. Final point, Catherine. <laughs> well, I, d- I don't think that's right. With the greatest, uh, <laughs> with the greatest of respect, I really don't. I think you, you're kind of. But was there a double standard though? You very rarely heard the journalists talk out Turnbull the way he undermined Abbott, and yet with Abbott undermine with with these conservatives undermining Turnbull, it's, it seems like it's a different account from the press gallery. I don't know. I mean, look, I haven't sat down and done a literature analysis, right? Like we were all producing content so rapidly over the last fortnight <laughs> yes. that I'm going to be honest with you, I've not cons- I have not yeah. sat down and done a literature literature review. I couldn't say I couldn't make a substantive point about what yeah. had or hadn't been done at this point because I'm, you know, I was I was producing around the clock myself. But Catherine, which all makes... the time that's been spent moaning about sections of the media rather than actually looking at the fact that Malcolm Turnbull himself behaved in a deliberately insurgent fashion, that he was disloyal, that he took the knives out. You know, to, for him to cry now about how, sh- how how shameful and shocking the events have been, I mean, this is laughable behaviour. Well, no, no, well, sure. Well, I mean, you know, politicians and assert self-interest. I mean, well, there's some breaking news. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we're... Yeah, but we could report that. As, as people in the media, we could Ladies, actually just we, say we that. are out of time. It's been a vibrant debate. Let's keep it going <laughs> next time. Catherine Murphy's with The Guardian and Janet Albrickson is with The Australian. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Thank there you, Catherine. Well, this year, we've covered several elections that have returned a surprising result. Mexico, Pakistan, and of course, Malaysia. All ousted long-sitting parties and brought to power a new leader promising sweeping change. Now, this week marks 100 days since Malaysia's general election saw the then 92-year-old Mahathir Mohamad return as the country's Prime Minister. It ended 61 years of UNMO rule. This is the party that governed Malaysia in coalition since independence in 1957. Now, Mahathir promised to reform Malaysia's corrupt institutions, overhaul the country's economy and finances. Here he is at his swearing-in ceremony. Yes, certain is must uh, fall. We find that some people were aiding and abetting a prime minister which uh, the world condemns as a kleptocrat. We have to increase the confidence of investors in Malaysian administration. We will rule the country according to the laws of this country. But we also intend to abolish laws which are oppressive and unfair. And we have to study the fake news law. And then the other one is the National Security Council, which is designed to frighten people. 
So has Mahathir made much progress on his reform agenda in his first 100 days? Well, let's ask Bridget Welsh. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at John Cabot University in Rome. She's also an expert on Malaysian politics. You may remember that we spoke with Bridget on the day the election result was announced. (laughs) Bridget, welcome back to Between the Lines. Nice to be here. What stood out to you in the first 100 days of Mahathir's prime ministership? Well, I think it shouldn't be a surprise, but I think that what's very clear is that the reform process is a very slow one. While there have been significant steps to address some of the key issues, the focus of the administration has been on trying to address the problems of the past. The issues that have been central are concentrating on 1MDB, which is that terrible scandal involving multiple billions of dollars, as well as trying to uncover what has been happening in terms of issues of corruption and poor governance in the previous administration under Najib Tun Razak. And this has taken a lot of time. In terms of more democratic and institutional reforms, the process has been a very difficult one for a couple of reasons, uh, the first of which is, is that there has been considerable resistance inside the system to these changes. And the second is that the rot in terms of the institutional systems goes very deep and will take considerable time to move forward. And to be fair, I mean, we're talking about the Malaysians being creatures of habit. We've had more than 60 years of unmar rule. That makes it difficult. You mentioned 1MDB scandal. Now, that's Malaysia's biggest corruption case, which has at its centre the former Prime Minister Razak. Now, he's facing a raft of charges. What's the latest on the case, Bridget? He has been charged. There are multiple charges against him involving issues associated with abuse of power, money laundering, uh, and so forth. The case will not actually go to the courts until next year, and it's focused on one particular element within the 1MDB scandal. So it's actually, I think, a very beginning part of the legal proceedings against him. So there have been some efforts, and these efforts, of course, with 1MDB have been international in scope because many of the deals associated with 1MDB have been outside. Malaysia has been in the press recently for the cancellation of projects with China. These also involve uh, 1MDB funds and, and are seen to be very closely connected to the former prime minister. Rajib Razak had a pretty close relationship with Beijing. What's the nature of Kuala Lumpur's relations with the Chinese government? Well, I think there's considerable more um, distance. I mean, I think the reality is is that all countries in Southeast Asia need to have a very good working relationship with China, given its regional economic power and also the role that China is playing in the global economy. Malaysia is Southeast Asia's first trading partner with over $100 billion in trade. We also see uh, considerable investments during the last uh, decade from China and also from Malaysia, both back and forth. And I think Malaysia's geostrategic position especially close to the South China Sea, has made Malaysia very important for China. And this relationship has deepened. The problem for Mahathir was not so much the economic and the the geostrategic relationships, but predominantly in the last visit, the focal point of the fact that these infrastructure deals uh, associated with Belt and Road Initiative Mm -hmm. were connected with the payoff of funds for the 1MDB. And they were perceived to be not given on favorable terms by the Malaysians and involve very high levels of indebtedness from the perspective of the Mahathir administration. And this is why they have been cancelled. And didn't he do that while he was on a visit in Beijing? Well, the signals were clearly sent well beforehand. Uh, But is it fair to say he's not concerned about angering the Chinese government? 
think he's not concerned about sending a message that Malaysia is going mm. to take a different stand, that this administration will take a different set of positions. Malaysia does have, because they've brokered these contracts, they will have to negotiate some sort of settlement. And, and of course, these are things will be continuing to evolve. It's not just something about breaking a contract, because these things will not only define the Malaysia-China relationship, but I think they set a, a precedent in terms of other Southeast Asian countries. Yeah. That brings us back to the domestic sphere, uh, judiciary, electoral bodies, police, anti-corruption bodies, they're all in, in need of reform. Has Mahathir's government taken any steps towards addressing these issues in his first hundred days? There have been steps, uh, but they have been very uneven, and some of them have not given the same priority. So the most substantive reform issues have been actually, surprisingly for many people, um, a reduction of the executive powers. So many in new institutions, such as the MACC, which is involving anti-corruption, and the Judicial uh, Appointments Board and others, no longer report to the Prime Minister's office. They now report to the Parliament. And this is a, a quite significant shift in terms of where power is being sent so there's been a moving away from the centralization of the executive power. Mm. Uh, I think that has been uh, quite an important initiative. Some people would like this to go further, and that part of the reason that it hasn't is that this involves constitutional amendments, which have yet to be passed through the parliament. So one of those things that is very clearly on the agenda is having a two-term prime minister. I think in terms of the laws, um, there's only been one substantive uh, repeal of the law, which was the anti-fake news provisions, which was mentioned in the in the clip that mm-hmm. you had earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of changing a lot of the other draconian measures, these have yet to move forward. Finally, Anwar Ibrahim, uh, Mahathir's running mate at the election, his former nemesis. Now, at some point, Mahathir is due to step down to make way for Anwar Ibrahim to assume the prime ministership. Has Anwar proven to be an asset or a hindrance to Mahathir, especially given his praise for the Turkish president Erdogan's commitment to democracy? Anwar has been very much focused on uh, positioning himself in the new environment. Many of the the statements that he's been making have been really about finding his own role uh, in this environment. He doesn't have a clear position. He's now focusing heavily on uh, running for the presidency, or he's actually going to win the presidency for his party, but his party is going through a very divisive election. There have been mixed signals sent in terms of Anwar, in terms of democratic reform, and I think there have been concerns raised about that among many different quarters within the Malaysian political system, whether or not Anwar is embracing reform. Particularly, uh, he has been seen to be adopting a kind of a more racialized Malay-focused agenda or things associated with the Malay agenda. And of course, uh, there were concerns about his visit to Turkey and the signals and the, what, that, what that sends. And people are asking questions about what his priorities will be. Bridget, great to have you on Between the Lines again. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Bridget Welsh, an Associate Professor of Political Science at John Cabot University in Rome and an expert on Malaysian politics. Well, before you leave us, let's return to our leading story, federal politics. Now, earlier this week, Tony Abbott and I had a discussion on, among other things, why politics has become so polarising in recent times. Here's a former Prime Minister's response. Is it the circumstances that have changed? Uh, Is it the characters of the individuals at the top uh, which are different? I don't know. But certainly, uh, as a senior member of the Howard government, um, I was aware of plenty of disagreements, both 
across the aisle and on our side of the aisle. And yet, um, I think there was a degree of respect between Howard and Hawke. Uh, there was a degree of respect between uh, Keating and Costello. Uh, there was a degree, uh, there was great respect and, uh, and solidarity uh, inside the senior Yes, but to be Howard fair, government. though, Hawke, Keating, Howard, Costello, they never had to deal with this toxic polarisation of Twitter and social media. To what no extent doubt. has that changed things? No, look, th there is absolutely no doubt that the 24-7 media cycle uh, has made it harder. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, the public discourse has coarsened because it's more anonymous than mm. ever before. And anonymity uh, makes uh, vicious cowards of us all <laughs> if, uh, if we let ourselves uh, sink uh, to those depths. That was Tony Abbott. He was with me at the Centre for Independent Studies in Sydney this week. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. Always great to have your company. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. Mm -hmm.